Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. This week brought to you by Shoes. Aren't they great? Truly the sole of your feet. (laughs) This is a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm here with my good friend Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm quite well, thanks. How are you? We are going to follow the mandated board game podcast layout. We are going to talk about the game we reviewed exactly one year ago. The games we played this week. The news and why it doesn't matter. And this week's topic, which is difficulty in co-ops. Mark, what game did we play exactly one year ago? Well, last year we reviewed Project Elite, specifically the Cool Many or Not version of Project Elite. This was designed by Konstantinos Kakinis and Marco Portugal and Sotiros Tsantsilas. It was originally published in an earlier Artipia Games version, which we also tried. But this was the newer crowdfunded Cool Many or Not version. And I think it's safe to say that this is one of those games that I am perfectly happy to play, but that my enthusiasm is easily eclipsed by yours. It's true. I love this game. Real-time, miniatures, tower defense go out on a mission, blow up aliens, love it all, Project Elite. I believe that this edition was the one we got in after I traded away the earlier edition, when I announced to Walker that I had traded away the RTPA Games version, he looked at me as though I just shot his dog. And I can now announce safely, because I know Walker has his own copy, that uh, actually I traded away my Simon edition as well. You're a monster. Truly a monster. They should make a boss af- named after you in Project Elite. I think if they wanted to make the boss to scale, they would run out of plastic. So I don't think that would work. I don't think it would work either, because then my game would be covered with salt stains and it would be awful. So one of Walker's favorites, I'm happy to play it, but I don't think it is an earth-shattering design. That is Project Elite, real-time co-op by Kulmini or not. And now on to the games we played last week. Walker, what'd you play last week? Mark, Board Game Arena now has Crusaders. It's pretty well my only regret of my purge. It is uh, a game I really enjoy playing. It's got this great rondelle system where... You're moving these pylons around the rondelle and how many pylons are on each action is going to tell you the strength of that action. And you can also, you know, flip the tiles around and upgrade all of these actions. And you're sort of 
questing out or exploring out, building buildings, fighting battles. It's a nice, short, easy, quick to teach, fun game. It was by Tasty Mitchell Games, so it's kind of hard to get. There was a nice deluxified version. There was something about an expansion. Apparently, the designer has a big announcement coming out soon. Because apparently, Mark, all the expansions were printed, but they're just sitting in a warehouse somewhere because they're not going to be distributed. So hopefully this news is that we will see the expansion for Crusaders. I couldn't help but notice that when Fun Again was doing its liquidation of Tasty Minstrel stock, there were a fair number of (sighs) deluxe versions of Crusaders available, so a number of people were able to pick it up in that context. I find it interesting, Walker, I just want to stress this because I just find it humorous, not because it's an actual substantive criticism of the game, of which I have several. I, when we reviewed it, I wasn't very pro-Crusaders. You say explore out. Uh, mostly what one does in Crusaders They Will Be Done is one goes out and one brutally represses Christians. In that, at least, it is accurate to the Crusades. I, I didn't When I was playing on Board Game Geek, I didn't see that button that said suppress Christians. <laughs> I, it might have been there. Maybe when you mouse over it, it changes. It just said, it just said. Well, did you notice that all those countries where you go crusading, so many of them happen to be European? A lot of those were Christians that you were killing, Walker. I. Uh, this is all the, the fog of war, I believe they call that, Mark. Oh, that's some pretty heavy fog. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. That's some next level fog. That's like Silent Hill times a million. So, Crusaders was designed by Seth Jaffe, and like I already said, published by Tasty Minstrel Games. If you have a chance to play it, or even come on Board Game Arena, I'll gladly play it with anyone. Crusaders, thy will be done. On the topic of Board Game Arena, we returned to the Board Game Arena adaptation of Beyond the Sun. And before I go any further on Beyond the Sun, I just want to stress how pleased I am that thus far, Board Game Arena's acquisition by Asmodee has not led to some kind of either systematic or de facto purge of non-Asmodee titles. We see more and more support for even defunct designs. I mean, Crusaders They Will Be Done isn't really owned by any publishing house, and so it certainly isn't being supported by Asmodee. Uh, The recent movement of two excellent Euro games, specifically A Feast for Odin and El Grande, out from Alpha Stage is an indication of progress. Anyway, I was a little, like like much of the community, I was kind of holding my breath when I heard that Asmodee had acquired Board Game Arena. I was wondering if that was the end of non-Board Game Arena titles, but I'm very, very pleased that there's been continued development. And there's been continued development and support of Beyond the Sun by Dennis K. Chan. They've actually implemented some balance changes to two of the technologies. Number one, I'm glad for the support. And number two, I'm glad that after all this online play, there have only really been two or three technologies that the designer and or the community have flagged as needing a little bit of a tweak. That's a good sign because the appeal of Beyond the Sun is often very much about developing this tech tree and awesome and cool technologies that get developed. It's very much a Euro. It's very much a worker placement game, but nonetheless, you get some of the excitement and satisfaction out of a more heavily themed, more bloated, more convoluted, broke science fiction game. And I'm often in the mood for those games as well, but Beyond the Sun very much manages to capture a lot of the appeal uh, and straddle genres in that way. I'm very much looking forward to the expansion of Beyond the Sun. I am still happy to play the base game in Board Game Arena, despite the fact that Board Game Arena, I, I mean, having praised its implementation of some of the, 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 the beta modifications of the cards, you still can't play Beyond the Sun the way you and I like to play Beyond the Sun, namely with A, the asymmetric factions, and B, the technology draft board. Now, I completely understand why they haven't implemented the asymmetric factions. The programming 
of the at-any-time actions or some of the reactions would be a bit of a bear. That's the stated reason. The technology draft board, though, being able to see what technologies might come up, I'm a little bit surprised that there hasn't been an effort made to implement that. But what anyway, anyway, this is a mild criticism of what is a solid implementation of a very, very satisfying Euro game. And I'm very pleased to see it getting some success and support. And I'm very much looking forward to the expansion that's going to be introducing yet more stuff as well as a solitaire variant. The solitaire variant is, of course, because it is 2022 and solitaire variants are mandated by federal, local and international law. And so that was another very satisfying play of Beyond the Sun by Dennis K. Chan at Rio Grande Games. I'm surprised the fact that they balanced some cards out that they didn't push to get the expansion implemented into Board Game Arena to get that extra playtesting done. Because I'm sure there was playtesting done on the original game and they didn't catch those balance problems. So I'm just wondering, you know, why they didn't press to get that done. Well, I'm a little bit loath to define it as catching balance problems in the first instance. And in the second, I completely understand that they don't want the beta testing of the expansion to go on this platform necessarily. I mean, you'd be talking about a lot of upfront programming work for what may or may not be a finalized version. I mean, before the game is actually published, who knows what broader systematic changes might get implemented, and they might not want to expose it to a broader community yet. On the other hand, minor tweaks to an existing system something that you can just toggle on or off for any given play, that seems like a much more approachable thing and a much easier thing to get large-scale anonymous feedback on. So it makes sense to me. And uh, besides, we're not 100% sure that the expansion is already in the can. It makes sense to me, at least. It's true. So I got to play Gutenberg twice this week. It is a game designed by Katzenia Kajic and Wojciech Winsinski, published by... Grena Games. Now, what Gutenberg does is uh, Gutenberg was the inventor of the typeset machine. And so you are taking orders from customers. They want particular letters. And it would be a bonus if these letters were in a certain color, or it would be a bonus if you had certain skills. So just having the letters, you can complete the order and you'll usually get some money. But if you have these bonus things, you get more victory points. And if you happen to have both things, the right skills and the right ink, then you're going to get even more victory points or a bonus on top of that. And it all comes down to, you go down all of these actions in order. You're either taking orders, you're upgrading your machines, you're getting ink, you're uh, getting patronage. And it has this very interesting sort of action selection system where the first player has a few less cubes. I think it's like, it goes seven, eight, nine type thing. So you have seven cubes to slot into these actions. And you have to have at least a cube in the action to take the action. And then whoever has the most cubes in an action gets to take that action first. And man, the more and more I play it, the more important this action selection system is. And it's denying people uh, ink they need. It's denying them cogs they want or getting things you want before they can. It's all sorts of very interesting gameplay just on the action selection alone. Never mind, you know, going up these tracks, taking patronage before other people get it. I am enjoying Gutenberg. It's fantastic. Fantastic production it has these wooden, actual like three dimensional wooden letters, like actual large typeset letters, and you're placing them at anything. They all have. There's this. Uh, I, I think it's a. We've always played with it, but you get have asymmetrical powers. You have all these different leaders you get to choose from. Like everything about it, going to keep it for a while. Can't wait to show it to you. Gutenberg. 
Well, anytime there's a contemporary Euro that leads on a clever action selection mechanism, I'm definitely down to give it a shot. Still a bit confused about the absence of the letter E, though. Any explanation for that yet? Well, you see, rabbits. Go on. Oh, that, that, that's it. That's all I got. Okay. I gotta say, as, <laughs> as a conspiracy theorist, Walker, you're definitely second right. <laughs> I get to play Rain. This is R-E-I-G-N, as in we are all ruled over by the benevolent reign of His Grace, the Duke of Diesel. And this is a... I, I, I tried this because this is getting rather a lot of support and enthusiasm on some circles of board game Twitter, particularly amongst the people who were associated with what might have been called the Ameritrash revival movement of about two decades ago. Because Rain is a game replete with colorful gobs of plastic a very, very colorful board. I mean, I, I stress how colorful it is, but unfortunately, Walker, I've got bad news for you. You cannot play as purple. Oh, boo. One out of ten. Unplayable. I never meant to cause you any sorrow. I never meant to cause you any pain. I only wanted one time to see you playing. I only wanted to see you playing in the purple rain. At any rate, rain is, as contrast to something I said last week with respect to Cleos, I said that Cleos was the right kind of stupid. I think that Rain might be the right kind of stupid if you are playing with children. And I mean specifically children. I don't even think that adult non-hobbyist gamers are a good target audience for Rain, unless perhaps they're inebriated, or if they think that the height of game design is something like Munchkin or LCR. And I don't mean to sound pejorative when I say that. If, if people really, really enjoy that kind of thing, that's cool. Some people really thrill to the prospect of rolling a d6 and adding maybe a plus one for a plus one unit, and then killing a level three unit, even though it's been buffed by by some sort of item, and that's the entirety of the gameplay. If that's your bag, by all means, Rain is for you. It's about 20 bucks. You can find it replete with miniatures and a whole bunch of shockingly high-quality components at many, many big box stores here in the United States of America. But quite frankly, it, it really leans into all the kind of design problems of the past 20 years that you might expect from a design at this level. So, for example... If you initiate a combat, somebody is going to die. And the goal of the game is to be the last person standing. So naturally, you immediately fall into a lot of the multiplayer conflict problems. There's very little incentive to attack, unless you have what might appear to be overwhelming superiority. But you can only get so far in that superiority, so you're basically at the whim of the dice anyway. There's a potentially novel element whereby the board shrinks as the game goes on. So one of the ways in which Rain overcomes some of the design problems of games of its ilk is that it will end very quickly. It's a very brisk game because the map is getting so small and everyone's in each other's face and the deaths start to pile up. That's only, of course, assuming that people engage in violence when it is against their best interest. Because, again, there's precious little incentive to attack. Mostly it's about hoarding the one resource that exists, but you're not going to have enough of a resource advantage to make it impossible for other people to attack you. It, it's just, it's a really, really basic design. It's the kind of game where any hobbyist gamer who's played anything in the past five years that has any kind of combat in it sitting there saying, even if you want to limit this for children, if you want to make this, you know, approachable for eight years and up, there's a whole bunch of things that you could have done to make Rain more functional. As it is, it's a, a reasonably pointless exercise in dice rolling. I would say that the decision-making and the quality of gameplay here is roughly about a fifth of what you might encounter in a game of Llama Dice, and Llama Dice ain't the deepest thing in the world. So in terms of, of just bashing each other upside the head, this is not anything new. In fact, it's, it's a retrograde to back when things were kind of silly. I mean, I'm emphasizing this because Rain really is, you explain the rules, and you might look at it and say, what? That, that's it? Yes, that's it. Not in a good way. 
in a bad way. Even without making it more complicated, as I say, there, there could have been elements. For example, just off the top of my head, as, as we were spitballing after the, the gameplay, if attacks could move figures around, that would automatically introduce some additional appeal to the game because, as I say, the board is shrinking progressively. I don't. I, I will give credit where credit is due. I can't think of other designs, recent or otherwise, that have sought to ape some of the popular conventions of your PUBG or Fortnite-style games where the map is shrinking, where you're playing a conflict game and it, it's shrinking in that way. There have been a ton of MOBA-style games that are focused on clever use of terrain and combat, but nothing with the, that shrinking element. So I, I guess what I'm saying is, if you want to take the one thing in Rain that's kind of novel and grafted onto a combat system that is not borderline comic in its execution, I say good luck, and that seems like fertile design ground. So, <laughs> by all means, please someone give that a try. I think that's enough gushing about Rain, Mark. You need to settle down. Look, and, and to be frank, just, just for context, I didn't hate the time I spent with it. Would I ever play it again? No, not willingly. But if there was some child that brought it over, I would definitely play it with the terrorist. People who remember the terrorist from a few years ago who loved playing Monopoly and was, was definitely a poor loser. Uh, but whatever. I, past that, I, I wish I could resurrect another segment from several years ago, a pre, pre-COVID segment. I don't know if you remember this, Walker, which was component reviews from an eight-year-old. That was a very, very popular segment that we had a couple of times. I have not seen the eight-year-old in question. And I think just by virtue of the inexorable march of time, this eight-year-old no longer exists and in fact has been replaced by some sort of 10-year-old. But uh, the components are nice. That's rain. You can tell that whoever designed Rain was so pleased because they insisted on putting their name on the box. That Rain was designed by Uncredited and published by Playmonster a couple of years ago. If you want to kitbash something, if you're a designer and you want a whole bunch of cheap minis and you want to laugh at the design of Rain, eh, it might be worth your 20 bucks. Mark, have you played Gizmos? I have not played Gizmos. So if you are in the mood for like a Splendor type game, I know we normally are not. But if you're introducing new people and you think Splendor is a good fit for that particular group, Gizmos is definitely much better, in my opinion. Because you're doing practically the same thing. You're taking these marbles, much like you take the chips, and you're uh, buying cards from the display, and you're trying to get them before other people, and they're going to score a number of victory points. And, and when you have as a number of gizmos out or a number of the extra big gizmos out, then the game will end. But how this is better than uh, Splendor is that these, instead of just the gems helping you buy more cards, these will actually trigger off each other. So it will say, well, when you take a red chip, you can also take a chip at random. Or when you take, when you use a red chip, it'll actually count as two red chips. So you're starting, you're building this very interesting tableau where it's doing all sorts of different things. It uses this marble system where they fall down and shoot and everyone's, you know, drawing off of, you know, a choice of the six random marbles that are coming out instead of, you know, like the normal Splendor display. But other than that, I think for what it is, Gizmos is a fantastic game. It's another Phil Walker Harding game. It was published by Simon, and I'm surprised that I haven't heard of it before now. Got to return to one of my old favorites, one of my favorite historical war games, Combat Commander, specifically Combat Commander Mediterranean. This is because Combat Commander Mediterranean, once you've included that expansion with Combat Commander Europe, you can have scenarios that implicate more or less any of the belligerents 
in the Western Front and indeed much of the context of North Africa as well. By the late great Chad Jensen at GMT Games, it was published originally in 2007, but it's been in various stages of reprint ever since. Got to sit down with Josephus. It's one of the favorite games that Josephus and I play, and we had an engagement in 1939 with French chasseurs against German riflemen, and it went about as well as you might expect based on whatever prejudices you might have about the Western Front. The great thing about the random scenario generator, and I, I stress this because a lot of people have played a lot of Combat Commander Europe and have never tried the random scenario generator, but I, a lot made sense when I heard that Chad Jensen and Kai Jensen and a lot of other people who are involved in designing Combat Commander the default mode of play for them was the random scenario generator. They only started developing the scenarios when the game was going, leading up to publication because it was felt that it was kind of a necessity in a modern design. And the just the, the stunning variety in engagements is really impressive and really satisfying. And you don't ever really see the same kind of engagement twice. And this was an utter meat grinder, but a meat grinder of close combat because the way the map was oriented, the defender, namely the French, had to set up all the way near the front edge of the map so as to try to block the advance of the German rifles because otherwise a lot of the objective spaces would just be behind German lines within a few rounds. So this was not a maneuver-heavy engagement. This was a lot of close-range firepower and then a close a lot of close-range melee, and the casualties racked up real fast. And I respect why the defender made those choices, and indeed, it kind of forced my hand as the attacker to basically double down on the same notion, you know, heavy machine guns right in each other's faces, which could have ended badly for the system because despite the fact that I love Combat Commander and you absolutely get a wonderful sense of narrative in almost every session, the events add so much color and the deck and hand manipulation lead to so many interesting trade-offs and decisions over the course of the game. The weakest aspect, as far as I'm concerned, is indeed how firepower works in Combat Commander. It's very awkward, it's very clumsy, it can leave you very much at the mercy of very strange and gamey situations. Because each unit can only be activated once, sometimes you end up in these protracted periods where you generate a massive volume of fire, it breaks the enemy unit, but then the enemy unit immediately recovers and you go back to square one. I was a little bit concerned that we might have uh, a period like that, but no, things moved along very, very quickly, uh, in part because my partner, uh, Josephus, never has any luck when it comes to combat commander. I've talked about this before. I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for especially role players, but a lot of people who say, oh, I, I never roll dice well, or my luck is really bad, or your luck is always really good. His luck in Combat Commander is sufficiently and reliably terrible that it's almost enough to make me superstitious. At any rate, <laughs> part of that, though, in this case, can be attributed to the fact that the French in Combat Commander have certain structural problems. Namely, their discard limit is really low, their command and control is really, really poor, but nonetheless, it models the troops as being of good quality and their orders of being of good quality. So I very much appreciate Chad Jensen's approach to, to modeling the French in the Western Front in World War II. This is sort of a bugbear for me as a historical wargamer about how the French are modeled. It's, it's a bit of a difficult design challenge, but I think Combat Commander does a reasonably good job. At any rate, I can and have talk about Combat Commander a great deal. It is absolutely my favorite wargame of that scope and scale, and it really does give you a tremendous amount of variety out of the box with real quality decision-making. And I highly, highly recommend it both to longtime historical wargamers and for anybody who might want an intro level system that's perhaps a little bit more complicated than Commands and Colors. I'm a big fan of Commands and Colors as well, but this is definitely a, a minor step up in terms of complexity. But 
Another great thing about the Combat Commander series is, to this day, I think it still has my favorite rulebook of all time in terms of clarity, comprehensiveness, ease of finding rules. I haven't played Combat Commander in years, but despite that, I only needed to consult the rulebook one or two times in order to find minor points of clarification, and I found them immediately. So that is a testament both to the quality of the rule set and their rules presentation. Huge fan of Combat Commander, highly recommend it, especially once you have the first expansion, Combat Commander Mediterranean. I finally got to play Jekyll and Hyde in real life as opposed to the board game arena implementation. This is a trick-taking game that has asymmetrical sort of objectives, heavy theme. One player is playing Dr. Jekyll, the other one is playing Hyde, and Hyde is chaotic. He wants a whole swing of tricks. He either wants to win them all or lose them all. Dr. Jekyll wants to keep it even, nice, calm collected mind because it goes for three rounds and at the end of every round you're going to move a marker up a scale whatever the difference in tricks are and then there's this very interesting sort of uh system on who wins the trick you play the cards and then if they're both the same color then whoever's the highest number wins if they are different colors which means whoever led the next player didn't have that particular color then you have to concert consult a little chart that you made because the first card played in that round you put down a token and that's going to be the weakest uh trump or or strength and then the second card will be the you know second and third and so on there was only three different colors it's hard to explain there's also these potions that will trigger special powers and you're allowed to play them out of suit if you wish and depending on what the other player plays it's going to trigger a special ability either clearing the power of the cards or making you trade more cards or uh, uh, switching tricks like giving a trick to the other player you can even play a potion first and and coax out cards like if you play a potion as a lead you can force the other player to play a card there's lots of decisions going on in this game really enjoy it two-player trick-taking game hard to do this is from Mandu Games and designed by Junil. How are you finding the balance? Good so far. They, it's, they say it's harder for uh, Hyde. I can see that because if you get one really bad round, it didn't it didn't pan out in our game just because the last round went very poorly for Jekyll, but uh, because there was a uh, all tricks won by Jekyll, so it was like a 10, 10 advancement up the track in the last round. But Oof. they do say it's, it's harder for, for Hyde. But, you know, they say play two games. It goes fast enough that you can play two games. It's just, you know, 10, 30 hands with two players goes very quickly. And, you know, they say play two two games and switch roles and just play it that way. I really like the Trump system in Jekyll and Hyde. I really want to revisit the game. And I want to explore a little bit about how the Trump system works. Because, you know, based on whether the Trump is green or something else, it really, really... You have some ability to try to coax that based on what player you are, and it can lead to situations where there's a purple claim. Purple claim. Purple claim. Purple claim. And and you tra- it's, I love trick-taking games where you pass cards, because in the first round you pass one, second two, third three, and, and, and you can sort of bluff what you're going for as hide. You can sort of maybe trade hide car- high cards to make them think that you're going to lose all the tricks or... Or just, you know, bluffs like that, or getting rid of cards, passing cards, love that that mechanism. As I think I commented in our episode where we were talking about trick-taking games, outside of the crew or cooperative trick-taking games, 
I still don't understand the logic of passing cards. Not from a design perspective. From a design perspective, I understand why it's there. I'm just saying, as a player, I never know what to do. It just makes me feel like an idiot. But then again, a lot of good games do. Well, it really just depends on your hand, right? If you can get rid of an entire suit, then, then you know, that's. I think that's the, the trick. You want to get almost all the suit gone, so that means if they play it, then you can go off-suit and win the tricks. I think that's the way to do it. Got to play Ankh, Gods of Egypt. Oh my goodness, I love Ankh, Gods of Egypt. Played a new god as I try to tend to do. This is one of those classic instances of I love the system so much, and I love the asymmetry so much. I always want to try gods again, but I always want to try the new gods. This time I tr- I played Bastet, and Bastet gets to play mind games with the opponent. There are a couple of gods, particularly Thoth and Bastet, where it's really a question of double guess where you're trying to tease out your opponent and try to guess what they're going to do and punish them for that and making anticipation. I'm normally not very good at that, but basically how Bastet works is she gets to put up these cat tokens, and if you have the Kickstarter version, and again, I think that in case of Ankh, the, the Kickstarter version is really optional, unlike a lot of other Cool Mini or Not or other Kickstarter games where a lot of the Kickstarter-exclusive components are very, very essential. I've played with both. I maintain that the Kickstarter stuff in... Ankh is more optional than most. I'd be perfectly happy with cat tokens, but here, of course, you have little plastic cats with with stickers on them. One of them is a bomb, and the other one gives you bonuses in combat, and basically at any time on their turn, an opponent can, with a figure next to one of your cats, just reveal the cat, and if it's a bomb, the figure dies and you move your cats around, but if it's just a combat bonus, well then, the cat's gone and you don't get to benefit that cat in the ensuing combat. And that, I think, leads to very interesting questions about where you place and how and trying to anticipate what your opponents are going to do. And I I very much appreciate that with just subtle differences in a rule set like this, you have a new sub-element introduced into the entire game of Ankh, which is very characteristic of the way a lot of the powers in Ankh work. These comparatively simple, it's by no means a stripped-down simplistic game, but it's a comparatively simple set of interactions that are transparent that lead to a very large decision space and a very large range of effects that can take place. And all of these are reasons why we love Ankh Gods of Egypt. And I very much appreciated being able to test this out with a new set of subsystems. I still haven't tried the Pharaoh expansion yet. This is because mostly I haven't been playing with the same core group of people enough. I want to be able to wait until someone is playing the Pharaoh expansion after they played Ankh two or three times. I don't want to spring it on them for the first time. So I very much look forward to trying that as well because people rave about the Pharaoh expansion, Walker. I try not to listen to anybody but you when it comes to board games, but uh, there are some people who swear up and down that the Pharaoh expansion is where it's at. Oh, I definitely give it a try too. I love everything about We played the one where... Uh, the god has to try to guess on what action the other players are going to take. I thought that was amazing as well. Yeah, that's Thoth, yeah. And the the cat one would lead into what we were talking about a few episodes ago, that, you know, sort of quotation marks cheating, where you're like, oh, if I put it in, you know, you put the the token down, it's like, oh, if I put it in here, am I going to get a bonus for the battle, right? (laughs) Stuff like that, you know, know, the am I cheating, pretending that I don't know what the tokens are doing, all the while knowing exactly what they're doing, and forcing them to try to flip them over. Honestly, regardless of whatever opinions I might have about the legitimacy or appropriateness of a tactic like that, in the context of Bass Tokens, where it is specifically and explicitly about doublethink, I think you have to make an exception for cases like that. It's obviously okay to start messing around with things like that. Especially, I know some people who are very, very good at psyching me out just by rearranging the pieces. You know, they don't draw it out. It doesn't take forever. But, you know, they set up the pieces. They just make meaningful eye contact with me. And then they just rearrange the pieces again. And I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do with that? (laughs) 
I love it. Anyway, that is more experiences with our 2021 Game of the Year, Ankh, Gods of Egypt by Eric Lang and Kulmini or not. So, Mark, I think I played my last game of Merchant's Cove. I might play one more time because I have a, a faction that I have not played before. I'm not going to say that the novelty wore off, but I knew from the beginning that it was nothing that I felt it was a novelty, but it was still just a fun experience, right? But it's the fact that I have a bunch of those type of games already in my library, right? And this is just one more that I think that all of the people that I played with didn't enjoy it as much as I did. So what you're doing in Merchant's Cove is that you there's one central board with adventurers coming in to buy your items. And you're going to get some employees off that board. And that is pretty well the extent of the player interaction. The rest of it happens in your own little mini games. Either you're doing like a mini potion explosion or a mini dice game or a mini roll and write or all sorts of different mini games. And they're just like half-baked ideas of the actual game. So you're doing two hours of a substandard other game, right? And I love how it's sort of, we're all working towards the same thing to produce these items to sell to the adventurers and how we're all doing different things. It also works together. It's a novel idea. I like how it all works. But, you know, in reality, I think it's just too long and too much for what you get out of it. My central objection was always that regardless of how compelling or not compelling the little mini games we were playing were, it just made me feel like I was playing multiplayer solitaire because I never cared what anyone else was doing. You know, you don't get those points of contact, those points of friction that other asymmetric games give you. And I mean, the, the classic example of this is Root, of course, right? I don't necessarily need to internalize how you as the merchants work on your merchant board, but I darn well know how your warriors work because we're all on the same board. We're all fighting over the same resources. And if Merchant's Cove had had a little bit more of that, if the shared market, if you will, had been a little bit more substantial, and if we'd have been able to interfere with each other economically in a more substantial way, then I probably would have had a lot more enthusiasm. But I mean, as it is, everyone's just generating all these goods and the sale is pretty trivial. How people generate the goods is radically different, but ultimately it's one of those things where it's like, eh, you go and do your dice game. I'm over here playing with my marbles and okay, I got a yellow good. All right, here we are. Yep. Like I said, I think I'm done. This is published by Final Frontier Games. Anything we said interests you, check it out. Like I said, it is a very interesting design, but much too long for what it gives you. Merchant's Cove. Lastly, for me, I also got to play Caverna again. Oh my God, I just, it is one of my favorite games. It's an Uwe Rosenberg. It is very much like Agricola, except this is like the fantasy version. So this is put out by Lookout Games. I wanted to play it because there's an expansion coming out soon called Frantic Fiends. It looks as though it's going to add a little bit of cooperative action to it. And a game this old getting an expansion, just that itself is kind of exciting. So I shouldn't really say anything about it because I haven't really read into it. But it sounds like, well, I did read some and it sounds like that's what it is. Like sort of a cooperative sideboard that you have to sort of fight off these orcs while you're doing your other thing. So what we played was with the first expansion, it's called Forgotten Folk, where they have humans and elves and goblins and trolls and all sorts of different factions that you can play. They all have their special abilities. They all switch up some of the buildings that are available. So like in Agricola, you have all these cards, but in Caverna, it's this giant array of buildings that you're going to be building. You have a cavern system and you have a field system, same sort of action selection. 
same sort of need to uh, birth more workers, but it has this interesting, at least interesting to me, adventuring system where you're, you're Walker, weaponizing Walker. your... They're, they're called children. They're not called workers. Sorry. Children? Uh, well, I, I... Okay. Well, I use my children for labor, but, you know, to each his own. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, why don't you move on, Walker? Sorry for the interruption. I regret it already. So you're all, and then you weaponize your children. I mean, your workers. Oh my goodness! And you send your you send them out into the dungeons to you know bring back loot. Oh, all suddenly this, this is happens. explaining a lot of odd comments that I've heard around your house. <laughs> all of this is Caverna, and uh, it's a great game. If you have a chance to play it, I would definitely give it a go. You know what, Walker, on the talk of mediating relationships, I think we would probably be a lot happier if we stopped just living in our own corners, my preferring Agricola, you preferring Caverna, and we just agreed to just play the other one more often. I think that would just make us both happier on balance, because it's not like I hate Caverna, and it's not like you hate Agricola, we just have a strong preference for the other one. So if we just played both more often, I think we'd be happier generally. Am I wrong? I am 100% on board with that logic, sir. All right, makes sense to me. And so those are the games we played last week. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off, my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. All right, so all of those games I talked about, I streamed on Twitch. And uh, the Twitch uh, channel that I run is just straight up, we play the game. There's no baseball talk. There's no puppet shows. It's just us playing the game, talking about games, and teaching the actual games we're playing. So if that appeals to you, not that there's anything wrong with puppet shows and chit-chat, Remember our tagline, so very wrong about games, we hate puppets. But that's just not uh, uh, what we do. So if you want to just watch a board game being played and talk board games, come over to our channel and check us out. We're streaming at least three to four times a week because I've got a dedicated system down here and lots of fun. Oh, I'm sorry, Walker. I meant to say that our, our tagline was, so very wrong about games, we weaponize children. Uh, there we go. That's I have it on my t-shirt. It is what I do's. Um... And if you miss it, or if you just want to check it out, it is on our YouTube channel as well. Under the live tab, all of the games that we play get auto-loaded up there. Also coming out soon, it's called Fog Over Carcassonne, Mark. A very timely co-op version of Carcassonne. It looks kind of interesting. I was very enthusiastic. I, I have a soft spot in my heart for Carcassonne. It was my gateway game. I still find it very pleasant 
I don't find the competitive player interaction to be particularly satisfying in a lot of cases because it's so dependent on the tile draw. So it seems rife for a cooperative version. Now this is a this is a sort of supernaturally themed one. You're you're fighting off or at least warding off ghosts, which is strange. But it's by uh, Klaus Jürgen Rede, the author of Kakasun, and so I'm very enthusiastic for it. So Frostpunk's going to be released soon, Mark, and the company that's doing Frostpunk announced their next game. It's called Dying Light. It's based off of another video game. There's Dying Light and Dying Light Two. It is a zombie parkour video game and i thought what better way to represent fighting zombies in a 3d world doing parkour than transfer that to a board game what a great <laughs> mashup that is i don't understand it but once frostpunk comes out i hope it does very well and that will you know gauge whether or not i look more into this dying light well if you just watch the video they say it's going to be great it's going to be awesome so then there you go. What else do you need to know, Mark? Done. Case closed, right? Exactly. I'm sure, and I'm sure in their designer diary, they're going to stress how they've played a lot of games. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure it'll be solid. Definitely solid. On the topic of solid games, <laughs> Undaunted Normandy by the redoubtable, incredibly impressive, solid, reliable, and generally swell game designer David Thompson, as well as Ex the... Hold up. You just said you missed handsome. Okay? Get it right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he is, but I don't want to objectify the good man. Also by the equally talented Trevor Benjamin, it is going to be on PC, Mac, and iPad. It's going to be developed by Bookmark Games, with, of course, all the standard bells and whistles you would expect of a digital implementation, online play, an AI, some potentially questionable 3D graphics. But then again, we here at So Very Wrong About Games uh, tend to prefer slightly more minimalistic, top-down, be able to see the entire board kind of adaptations, but your mileage may vary. This is going to be up on Steam Early Access at some point, release date TBD, but as a massive, massive fan of Undaunted Normandy and the works of David Thompson more broadly, I am very much enthusiastic. And lastly in the news, we've talked a lot about 51st State. If it's something that's ever interested you, check out GameFound. The ultimate edition of 51st State is now up there. It will give you everything that is and more 51st State. And I'm going to get it I'm going to try to get it played this week, so you'll be able to watch that if you're interested at all. And that is the news, and why it doesn't matter. Now, on to the topic of the week, which is difficulty in co-ops. I just wanted to come forward, and because I didn't talk about it, I played Uprising about six times, and I failed to say two of those six times after the first turn, we simply completely reset and started over. Wait, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. So you were gaslighting me. Well, here I was complaining about how the first round, about how this 90-minute game could effectively be blown in the first round, and it was just upkeep and nonsense thereafter. And you were like, oh, Mark, you don't know what you're talking about. Uprising's great. Of course. How dare you, Walker? <laughs> Look, sometimes... Like we're going to talk about, sometimes certain mechanics that co-ops have to employ all coalesce with bad randomization and you're going to get very badly hurt in the first turn. And so you might as well just call it and just say, okay, well, we were very unlucky 
instead of grueling through these next two hours, why don't we just reset, realize that we made some mistakes or we got some very bad luck and we'll just reset and start over. I mean, I would argue instead of grueling through two hours of Uprising, you should just pack it away and play something else or do something equally enjoyable and just pounding your hand with a, with a hammer. But setting all that aside, so your claim that at the end of the day, almost all co-ops just have to rest on some degree of randomness has a weak version and a strong version. There's a weak claim and a strong claim. As a weak claim, I think it's it's perfectly acceptable. As a strong claim, I think you sometimes use it as a get-out-of-jail-free card or an implied uh, defense of games that don't deserve it otherwise. I think we're going to get into, into that later. But I would actually like to start by asking you uh, a question. You have in the past, and I share this view, so I have my own reasons, but I want to hear yours, expressed a preference for co-op games that are hard. Why do you prefer your co-op games to be hard, Walker? Well, several reasons. One, I want it to be a challenge. Two, I want to think that at the end of the game because I want to have lost the first game. I want to be able to reflect back and figure out what I can do differently. I want there to be replayability. I know if we win it in the first time, they'll be like, well, what's the sense of going back to it? Or it'll get awfully samey, or it'll feel as though you're just going through motions. Like how many co-ops have you played that have been too easy? Or, or we've just done very well in the last few turns or last few rounds are just sort of like wrap up. It's like, okay, and then we do this, then we do that. And, you know, you get into these sort of, you know, just doing the same thing over and over again because it's too easy. That's actually exactly what I've got here. I, I, I like to feel like I have something to learn. And I also feel that generally, there are exceptions, but generally a higher degree of difficulty improves the tension and engagement during the game. Because as you say, if it becomes clear that you're not being challenged, if it's one of those games where challenges appear in waves and you just mop up the wave really, really early, and you're sitting there saying, we're just going through the motions here, and or if, as you say, the last few turns are entirely pointless, then that kind of defeats the object. So exactly. all things being equal, yes, I prefer to lose on the first play. I think I'm a, between the two of us, I'm a little bit more tolerant of easier co-ops. I mean, I'm perfectly happy to play some co-ops that are reliably too easy. Uh, I, I think your your statement that there's nothing to go back to is perhaps a little strong. I don't. Yeah, I don't mean like never. I just mean that's like what you if said. It happens. If I it wrote it down. too many times, then you're going to get that feeling. You said never there's, and then ever 23 times in succession. It was very long. It's I'll true. edit it out for brevity, but that's what you said. This is. The, but the other thing is that even though I want it hard, or I think co-op should be hard, at the end, people should always feel as though they had a chance, like have that feeling like, like if only I had, had bought this sooner at had, had I only developed this part of my engine sooner had I only rolled a couple more successes in that one round we would have had it so you have to make sure you give them that feeling that they they had a chance somehow to still win absolutely there's some co-ops and indeed I would actually cite uprising curse of the last emperor as an example where the difficulty is a turnoff uh, precisely because either it's too difficult and you don't ever feel like you ever have a chance or because the difficulty is really based on, well, you're only going to have a chance if some early key randomness is going to break properly for you. Uh, But before we go on and talk more about high difficulty games, Walker's rolling his eyes at me. This is how he makes me feel valued here on Silver Island Games. It was was that head shake mark back and forth. It's like, I can see where you're coming from with that. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, now now I feel a little bit more valued. Maybe a, a two out of ten. 
But let me ask you a question, Walker, and I, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot. What would you say is the easiest co-op you still really enjoy? Oh, base pandemic, I guess, is what I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good example. Base pandemic is pretty reliable... Of course, base pandemic, you can just insert more epidemics, right? So, yes. Well, that's the co- other thing I have he- here as well. It really helps these co-ops if you can make them adjustable. Much like, you know, pandemic, more pandemics, uprising, switch up your chapters or switch up your enemies. Uh, G.I. Joe deck builder, you can, you know, uh, take different levels, just like exactly like uprising. You can do like level, a bunch of level one, one stories. You can do it however you like it doesn't have that in the rule book i'm just saying you could do it oh yeah sure i mean if you're willing to tear up the rule book and just insert different challenges i mean mean, just as that was an example there's a lot of rule systems that allow you to change up the rules like that right i would actually say just for what it's worth the easiest co-op that i still enjoy playing is spirit island on difficulty level zero and just uh, and just to stress, by the way, when we say that co-ops are comparatively easy, number one, this doesn't mean we always win. And number two, we don't mean to say that this should be e- equally easy for everybody. We're very, very clear here on So Very Well About Games that Facility at Games represents nothing more or nothing less than Facility at Games. We don't mean to say that this means that you're not a smart person or you're bad at playing games generally. Like some people find some games really hard. Some people find other games really easy. So just let, let's stress that we're not talking down to anybody here. But uh, speaking personally, I find Spirit uh, Difficulty Zero Spirit Island to be pretty much an inevitable win and pretty much an inevitable stomping uh, for the part of the colonists. And I still am willing to play it over and over and over again precisely because of how engaging the rest of the systems are. And you still get to get that. that it, it's, it's a nice little power fantasy. Let's be frank. That's one of the elements of Spirit Island that I very much appreciate. As much as I uh, don't like power fantasies in movies and television... I am certainly willing to indulge it in video and board games on occasion. Because that's, well, it's, it's the reason why it works so well in Spirit Island and in Salt, uh, Sentinels of the Multiverse, right? Because there are such a plethora of gods and or heroes to choose from, and they're going to interact differently with each other. So it's just enjoyable to watch how that interaction takes place, how it interacts with the villain, how it interacts with the environment, you know, or, you know, how, what, because uh, you can either focus on the gods' board abilities or... They're not gods, they're spirits. Sorry, sp- spirits. They're, they're spirit board or the the spells they acquire. Because there's a lot of, you know, interplay that you can do with the mechanisms themselves. And that's what makes that type of game interesting. Definitely. And it's worth stressing, to your previous point, Spirit Island can scale in difficulty really, really, really well. It goes from difficulty zero all the way to difficulty level 10. And it can get brutally difficult in much the same way that I find difficulty level zero to be borderline trivial in terms of the success likelihood, if not anything else. So what are what are some of the hardest co-ops that you really like, Walker? Well, let's uh, I'll keep going back to Uprising. I really like Project Elite is a co-op that is very hard that I really, really? enjoy. Don't we usually uh, win that? What, Project Elite? Well, in the yeah. difficulties that we've played, we haven't, I don't think we've delved very heavily into Project Elite. You can really ramp up the difficulty and That's make fair. it much difficult. Uh, uh, Siege of Rundar. Uh, I've won it once. I don't think we did. We didn't win it, did we? No. Oh, most emphatically not. No. So I won it once uh, the very first game I played solo. So more than likely, I probably played it wrong. 
<laughs> and so no no you just cut all the dead weight and uh went alone and found success there that's reasonable <laughs> it's, it's possible it's time for the Unlikely, AT walker you're ready walker i'm ready walker let's do this walker and so i guess those would be the hardest ones that i can think of off the top of my head Zeno no mention shift. of no mention of regicide too easy for you now regicide yeah yeah that's that's <laughs> old news because Xenoshift can get pretty hard, and it's satisfyingly difficult, but I, I seem to think that Xenoshift, we win more than we lose. It's true. If, Xenoshift actually is one of those games where, despite the fact that I very much enjoy it, the arc is a little bit awkward. It's it's the kind of game where the middle doesn't have a whole lot of tension. Very early on, when you have a really, really crappy deck, you can get a couple of bad pulls and you can get rocked real hard. And similarly, in the last rounds, you get all these aliens that show up that do automatic damage or very, very large combos. But in the middle, generally speaking, I don't think I've ever seen a loss in the middle. It's true. I'm wondering if there was a, when they were designing it, whether it was a hard balance to keep. Because the, the setup of the game and getting all the decks out and getting it all prepared versus how long they wanted the game to be. Because of that. I do believe the game goes too long, but I yes. also feel that if it was too much shorter, that the, the setup and the preparation would be too much for the length of the game. So I'm really wondering, that would be a question I would definitely ask if, if that was a, a difficult balance to maintain. That's reasonable. I would just say, though, in response to that, and this is apropos of nothing and very much off topic, they really should have had good dividers then if they were concerned about setup. I think they just got sloppy, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, my hardest are definitely uh, Regicide, which I will happily play, still happily play any day of the week, despite the fact that I've been walked past the velvet ropes into the Regicide Winners Club. And I have to say, a lot of people in this club are very, very snooty, and I'm beginning to regret being one of them. And the other game that consistently beats me like a rented mule is Assault on Doomrock, but I'm still very, very happy to play them. So, actually, if you don't mind, could we have a little bit of talk of uh, Siege of Rundar and perhaps, by extension, my other favorite whipping boy for the moment, Uprising Chris the Last Emperor? Because we sure can. I think those are good examples of co-ops who get their difficulty in what I would call an unearned or uninteresting way. Because both of them, I think, really hinge on how good are your dice rolls going to be. They both rely on relatively unmodifiable dice rolls. I'll grant you that in Uprising Curse of the Last Emperor, you have many more powers that can be used to modify your dice rolls. But in Rundar and in Uprising, at the end of the day, in order to see, seek victory, you're going to be forced in, by the game into situations where you're just shoveling your dice in the face of your challenge. And if you roll them dice, and if the dice say, you suck, that's it. There's not a whole lot of way for you to, to, to deal with that. And that doesn't seem as satisfying a challenge or as legitimate a way to introduce difficulty in an engaging play experience as far as I'm concerned. It is very uh, disappointing in the, in the case of Siege of Rundar because all of the other mechanisms are very interesting and seem to be well thought out. Whereas just the, you know, roll the dice and uh, you just messed up, sorry. You know, even like discarding a card to re-roll or if they just added something that helped you fix those dice up, it would have made it, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know what to say. It was from a new designer and I'm sure his next game will be fantastic. <laughs> well, that's the thing with Siege of Rundar that makes so little sense. This is a guy who's been designing brilliant dice games 
for literally over three decades. And he makes this game that has clever deck construction, interesting trade-offs of, of um, challenges and threats that you need to address, uh, a potentially interesting resource generation system, and the fulcrum of it is these unmodifiable dice rolls. And, and the castle, this giant 3D castle with stone blocks and catapults well, he, and I don't think Reiner Knizia had a whole lot to do with that. No, but, but I mean, as the whole package itself. Yes, it's, indeed. It's, it's, it's fantastic all around. And then, like you said, then it's got this terrible punishing dice system. I think he just... I think he's finding too much glee in people screaming at the llama dice and just <laughs> like that frustration. And he said, I got to put it in another game of, and just didn't realize how painful it was. Honestly, though, this could be one of those things. I have no idea if there are any plans for this. This could be one of those things that is almost entirely fixed by an expansion. If there were an expansion to Siege of Rundar that made the dice system a little more interesting, I could easily see it doubling in quality or satisfaction from a play experience very easily just from that alone. But he clearly didn't want to do it. Do you know what this is actually making me uh, uh, miss? Thinking both about Rain and the failings of Siege of Rundar. Again, this is off topic. I'm clearly not keeping my eyes on the prize. I want to play Clash of the Gladiators again. I want to pull out that classic from 20 years ago. Is that where you're moving around the trays of nethers? The the sleds of gladiators. Yes. Killing random animals, with apologies to the people for the ethical treatment of animals, killing random animals that have been tossed into the Colosseum. It's not perfect. It's got some problems. But let me tell you, I find it a heck of a lot more satisfying than games like Rain or games like Siege of Rundar. So when looking up this topic, Mark, there was an interesting article that talked about... Oh, there's harder, a topic? Okay. Harder versus more challenging. Like, either making something harder or making something more challenging. How, like, it's too... Complete different things. Okay, well, what's the, what's the distinction being drawn here? Making things harder would be just like upping the difficulty of the dice. Like saying instead of you roll the d20, instead of needing a 10, you need a 15. Just you know, okay. making it straight up just harder as opposed to inserting different challenges to make it you know something a little more logical as opposed to just straight up chance. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know that I would necessarily accept the terminological distinction, but I'll play along with that metric. One of the things that I find fascinating, I've talked about this before, is how many games seek to hide how much variability there is going on. So, for example, taking Pandemic, just as, as, as a case study, there are unwinnable games of Pandemic by virtue of how the infection cards come out. It's just, it's not perfectly transparent that those draws are what made you lose. On the other hand, if you take a look at a game like Regicide, if you take a look at a game like Assault on Doomrock, uh, actually, no, not, not even, if, sorry, let me retract that. I have different things to say about Doomrock. If you take a look at a game like Regicide, and just the extreme example, you deal out the initial hand and nobody has any diamonds, well, then you're going to lose. And I see so many threads on Board Game Geek of people, usually people who haven't played Regicide, saying, oh, well, this game is clearly problematic because if you deal out the initial hands and nobody has any diamonds, you just lose. Well, first of all, that's vanishingly unlikely. But secondly, I think this is just an example of the fact that Regicide is just really transparent in how the odds are being in- influencing your state of play. I'm not saying one is better or worse than the other. What I'm saying is that Pandemic does a better job of hiding the randomness or hiding the role that random deals has in terms of determining your fate. 
at the at the simple end of how transparent it is, I would again point to any dice based system, whether it's Siege of Rundar, whether it's Uprising, Curse of the Last Emperor, or whether it's any other uh, co op game where you just need roll fundamentally need to roll certain dice successes in order to get there. If you look down at the dice and you just never see any of the symbols you need, well, then it's going to be perfectly transparent why you're losing. It's true. There's there's dice. There's card draw that you can pull off the top. So much like. It's and it's different ways that the players perceive it, right? Yes. Because if you're pulling off the deck, they know the cards are in there. They know there's an equal chance. Whereas when you roll the dice, it could be the same thing every time. And then you even have things where you're pulling from the bag where you know it's in there. You know you have a chance of getting it. It's just whether or not that's the token you pull out of the bag. And so it's not so much the actual chance of doing it. It's how the players perceive their chances are. A lot of game design is fundamentally about misdirection and illusion, and I don't mean this pejoratively, because fundamentally a lot of these games, even the ones that are almost positional abstracts, are about selling you on an experience that you're not actually having. You know, you're not people sitting around a table manipulating pieces, you're doing some other thing, whether that's trading the Mediterranean or splitting the skull of an orc or what have you. But the same, the same is true of mechanisms, of core mechanisms. If you're rolling a die and it's just percentile chance of getting some sort of success, that's transparently obvious. If it's a, uh, a chit pull system or if it's a bag system or if it's a deck system where you can't easily compute the probabilities, that's a certain level of misdirection, of illusion, of hiding what's actually going on. And sometimes that's exactly what you want because then you think that you have greater agency than you actually do. Or it's a way to hide or obscure the actual difficulty that's going on. Another game that does a really good job of this, I think, is Hanabi. Hanabi is a brilliant cooperative game, but I, I seldom see people talk about how incredibly luck-dependent it is. And I don't even necessarily regard this as a problem, but getting to a perfect game of Hanabi, getting to that perfect 25, a lot of that's really going to depend on when people draw certain cards or, or tiles in the case of the deluxe version. So that, yeah, that lead in, led into something else that I was going to talk about too. Is it's interesting how most co-ops have a ridiculously strong theme. So it's I think it really sort of points in towards that we're going to create this story together as a group. We're going to go on this adventure. We're going to make this you know this this event together. And I think that's something that also brings everyone along and includes everyone in the game, which comes to another part of co-op difficulty and that's the shared penalty so unlike an uprising where like you said you can't get over to the other side to help the other player when there's penalties it's only hitting one player so it's not done well that way where as opposed to there's something like another thing that's very good in co-ops is coming to the rescue right so you can't do that in uprising in some cases but in a game like xeno shift where it's like someone's getting hit hard you need to jump in at the last second. You have these cards in your hand that will allow you to do that. And that is what co-ops are all about, right? I agree entirely. And the greater ability to be up in everyone else's business. I, I mean, player interaction in co-ops is really one of the fundamental things that helps the social experience. I like multiplayer solitaire co-ops, I think for me, fail more, uh, feel less satisfying as design than multiplayer solitaire uh, designs in other contexts as well. And I think you're right. It's because of that shared experience. 
that you're having that's slightly different. And I think that's a, that's also a way that you can kind of self-balance the game. This is actually one of the comments that, that people make about games like Rain, right? Like, yeah, it's an arbitrary thing, and uh, A and B fight, C wins, but, you know, you balance that off with politics, which I often say is just whining. It's like, yeah, risk doesn't really work as a multiplayer conflict design, but you're supposed to whine about how you're not winning, and then other people fight each other, and that's balancing the game. Sure, fine, whatever but, you say. Like, like like Rising Sun, right? All of that diplomatic talk that you do in, in Rising Sun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But in the case of a, of, of a good co-op design, where you're actually able to come to the rescue, you can have a game system be brutally punishing, and there's a great safety valve there if people are able to actually substantively help people out. That's another way that the game can still be really difficult and you don't feel that some people get sidelined. And that's, again, you mentioned Xenoshift. I think that's a great example of that. Another great example of that for me is Assault on Doomrock because a lot of the support abilities, a lot of your ability to come to the rescue of somebody who's in trouble in Assault on Doomrock are really very satisfying. I think where Assault on Doomrock gets a bad rap, again, is because people kind of misunderstand the probabilistic curve of Assault on Doomrock. I mean, for people who haven't played, you don't roll to do various things. You roll to activate various abilities. And I find far too many people approach a given round and say, I need to activate abilities A, B, and C this round, and I'm going to keep rolling until I get them, and then they don't get them, and then they blame the dice. Which, I mean, to my mind, that system is far, far better than a system like, say, Massive Darkness, just to pick on a, an incredibly stupid but satisfying co-op from my perspective. It's one of those dumb co-ops that I kind of enjoy. Looking forward to trying the sequel when it comes out. You know, you can definitely attack every round if you want to. The dice are just going to tell you sometimes that your attack does nothing. I would much rather have a dice system where you can't necessarily attack every round, but your dice can power other abilities if you're willing to be flexible. And the perception in different difficulty in that is fascinating to me, right? Like, you know, you go and attack somebody and you completely miss, but you say, I did something, as opposed to not being able to trigger your attack and someone feeling more frustrated. I always feel the opposite way. Combat Commander is the same way for what it's worth. Commands and Colors is the same way for two non-co-op designs. Yeah, for something basic, G.I. Joe is sort of the same way, too. You can you can say, well, I'm going to send all of my guys on a mission on somebody else's turn, and then your turn comes along and you do nothing. So it's, it's sometimes it's good to take that hit where, okay, I'm going to waste my turn, but at least we're going to get this mission completed. Yes, absolutely. That was one of those aspects of G.I. Joe, the deck-building game that I very much appreciated, being able to send your Joes on another player's turns. That at least acknowledged the cooperation that, in a way, that a shocking number of cooperative deck-builders don't. So like we've talked about before, uh, co-ops only have certain weapons at their discretion, like random dice, the card draw, the pulling from the bag. They have timers where decks might run out or enemies get more powerful if you leave them alone or actual timers where you have to, you know, get things done in a certain amount of time, space alert. Um, and then there's a new one that I haven't talked about before, but is very fascinating. And that's this, the Dixit system, right? It's all these new, new, newer games like Mysterium. They use these, these cards where you have to use inference or, you know, like sort of lead the people along with these cards. And it's a very interesting new whole mechanic that is not in, I'd be very interested to see this being used along with these other systems. Cause we've, they've done so many co-ops that interlink all of these event decks and random dice and, and all of these other things, but to incorporate these, you know, funky cards would be a very interesting addition. That's one of the reasons why Mysterium was so popular. It was just so novel when it came out. No one had really done the sort of Dixit Association induction kind of thing in a co-op method before. And it's now been done to death. I mean, I'm always happy to try a new variation. 
I actually really just prefer Taim Nietzsche to most of all the original Polish Mysterium for what it's worth, but I'm always happy to play an iteration on it. But there again, I, I think you're absolutely right. You're still, at the end of the day, fundamentally at the whim of some sort of random card draw, even in the context of Mysterium. Like, what dream cards did you pull? What other cards are there there just to misdirect the other players? How similar are they to the clues you need to give to them? Things like that. Agreed. And that is our take on difficulty in co-ops. Thank you so much for listening. You're trying to step on my toes here, Walker? This is normally, the send-off is normally my thing. I know. That's why I stopped there. Are you going to try to horn in on the rest of my territory, like being alienating? (laughs) Is that that the thing? You're going to start disappointing my parents now, too? This is a hostile takeover, Mark. (laughs) Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on SoWrongGames.com. All our contact information is at slash contact. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. There's also our public discussion venues on Facebook, on BoardGameGeek, Patreon, Twitch, and we hope to see you there. Thank you very much again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.